Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We're thankful that you speak to us by your spirit through the word that we might grow up into all that you want us to be. Help us to have a tinnitus ear to what you have to say to us today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was um, a number of years ago, Don and Carol Richardson, that name may be familiar with, to you, Don Richardson, written a number of books, but uh, they went to the mission field in Papua New Guinea, and there went back to a tribe that was um, uh, unconverted, had some distorted views of morality and truth and decency. In fact, they were uh, cannibals. They honored uh, betrayal, and when the story of uh, Jesus' death was shared with them, the one that they fell in love with was Judas. They loved Judas because he had betrayed Jesus. They would, as a matter of practice, capture their enemy, bring them into the, their tribe, and befriend them, and uh, fatten them up. And they really thought that these uh, ones were thought they were, had won and were being treated properly, but only to betray them, and then they would, uh, that would be their dinner the next night. They honored that. They loved that. So Don and Carol were confused. How are we ever going to get the gospel across to these people? How will they ever understand who Jesus Christ is with this distorted view of life? And then they learned, after they'd been in the village a while, that they'd learned this practice of that which was called a peace child. And a peace child was between these two tribes that had warred for years, and they came up with this idea that one, whichever tribe it would choose to do this, would present to the other tribe a baby. And this baby would become that peace child. And as long as that child lived, they would have peace between the, um, the two tribes. Well, it was perfect. They said, finally, we have an avenue that we can present the gospel because we know of peace child. We know of what uh, Isaiah promised that a child would be born. And he should be called wonderful, mighty God. But he, the, the prince of peace, he shall be the one who champions peace. And so they're able to share with them that, well, we know of a peace child, but this peace child never, ever dies. And you can have the guarantee of peace forever. And through that very process, these people came to an understanding of who Christ is and were redeemed. If there was ever a time in which we lived, and I know every generation probably has said this, ever a time in which we've lived that there is a need for a message of a peace child, we're living in that time right now. So much conflict and so much hostility. It's interesting to observe that uh, since about 34 BC, they have calculated as best they can We've had something like 15,000 wars during that time. Even Jesus said in the latter days there'll be wars and rumors of war. But 15,000 wars that have taken place during that time. They estimate there's only been about 286 years of peace. That means in the time of our existence, we've had about 8% of our, life, of our existence that's been with peace. That's, that's shocking, and yet it's not, as we'll look in a moment. 
It's interesting to observe in 1945, the United Nations came into existence. And their purpose of coming into existence right after World War II, where the Holocaust had taken place and so many people had been killed and so many people had been violently treated, their purpose was, and this is their slogan, to have succeeding generations be free from the scourge of war. End of quote. That was exactly what their objective was. Since that time, 1945, there has not been one day of peace. So it's, it's not working. And we can see that's in the world. We hear that all the time on the news. Uh, conflicts within religion, conflicts within national boundaries, conflicts within ideology, uh, all kinds of conflict, uh, racial conflict, just often on and on, and it goes all the way down even to family units as well. They estimate that, and you would think that it would be different in this, that there are 19,000 uh, conflicts amongst church people a year. Within churches, major conflicts that take place, that's 50 a day. I don't know who gets these statistics, you know. Nobody's ever asked me, do we have conflicts here, you know. But still, that's what they estimate. Now, here's the shocking thing about that. Of these 19,000 conflicts that take place, they must be Baptist churches is all I can figure out. I, <laughs> I grew up in a Baptist church, you know. Uh, but 2% of those, 2% of those have... De- dealt with doctrinal issues. 98% involved personal issues. And of those personal issues, 85% of those dealt with control. Who is going to control? 40% of people that leave the church do so because of conflict. It's a huge issue, isn't it? So when we think about that, in our society in which we live, there is the uncertainty of peace. There are fearful hearts. It's uh, not a perfect world, so we lock our doors at night. I remember when I grew up, we didn't lock our doors. Now we lock our doors. We put uh, alarm systems on that. We have concealed weapons permits, and we do all that. We have ball bats under our beds. There's anything but peace going on today. Relationships fall apart. People are unhappy, discontent, frustrated. Sitting in darkness without any sense of hope. And they're crying out, peace, peace. The Lord says in Isaiah that the wicked will never have peace. and They'll never find peace. And yet what I see in Scripture is that God being a prince of peace is that his desire for us, his desire for you, his desire for me right now is to have peace. In fact, in Jeremiah 29, when God was speaking to his own nation, he had taken his nation, the Jewish people, into captivity because of their disobedience and uh, They were discouraged. There were prophets that were teaching lies and priests that were teaching lies. And Jeremiah the prophet then spoke into this very issue, speaking the words of God. And that's where we hear that expression. You know, I know the plans that I have for you. 
And they're good plans. This is God speaking. And they're plans for peace. In other words, after the 70 years of discipline and judgment was done, God's full intention because of his deep love for his people, the Jewish people, was to bring them back in to the promised land, to be in a place of peace and comfort. So God has peace in mind for us. In John chapter 14, and where he says, let not your heart be troubled, he talks about a future that he has planned for us. And then he even says later on in that same chapter, he said, my peace I live with you, I leave with you, not as the world gives peace, but it's his peace, his personal peace that he gives to us. So there is this promise of peace that God gives to us, and we need to discover what that's all about in this age in which we live. Our theme this morning, as you look at it in your, um, in your bulletin notes that we gave to you, is a little play on words. You've seen that before. No God, N-O, God. No peace, N-O, no peace. No God, K-N-O-W, then no peace. And that's exactly what it's all about. Apart from God, there is no peace. There is no absence of conflict. Now we think about where all of this started. And last week we talked about purity of heart means um, a life that is without duplicity. We are single-mindedly focused upon God doing his will. Well, we learn a little bit more about the confusion that comes in into life because we understand where duplicity actually originated. It actually originated when Satan rebelled against God. And in rebelling against God, desiring to set up a kingdom for himself and to lead people astray, there became in the existence of, of, uh, of history for the first time two wills, the will of God and the usurped will of Satan. And that created this sense of conflict or double-mindedness. And we think about even in the, the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the question is in this conflict, who will win? Now we know, because we see it clearly in the scriptures, that God wins. But that's where conflict comes in. Then we see it entering into the human race. And when we look at the scripture, and the scriptures have a lot to say about peace, there's over, over 400 references that are given to peace. It's the primary subject. God wants us to have peace. But there was at one time in humanity, there was peace. Peace with God, peace within man's own heart, and peace in the relationships that he had. It was perfect world until Satan enters into the picture and deceives and leads, leads men and women astray and they rebelled against God. And at that moment, in the human race, the conflict was developed. And it was, in, it was universal in that sense. Conflict with God, conflict even within themselves, and also conflict with one another. This issue of sin came in. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Now we do know then, as I put in your notes here, the central focus for peace is the cross of Christ. In the midst of this chaos, there was, even when man rebelled against God, there was the promise given by God that there would be one who would come and he would conquer this usurper, Satan, 
and he would establish peace. Peace. And that's even the, the angels give that proclamation uh, when Jesus is born. But there had been the promise of this one that would come who would grant them peace. And of course, Christ did that. And he did so by dealing with our sins and granting us that acceptance before him. We still deal with the sin nature within us today, and so there's still conflict that goes on. There's still sin in our society. There's a world that's in opposition to God. But we can have peace in the midst of all of that. One day in the future, uh, the eternal will of God having finally set aside the usurped will of Satan and all of the followers of Satan, there will be this triumphant victory and we will experience peace as it was in the beginning because there will not be a conflict of will. There will not be a distraction that takes place. So we see then that God in the midst of our rebellion and our opposition has still said, what I want for you is that I want harmony. So the question then comes in is, what do we mean by peace, and how do we define peace, biblically speaking? There's a lot of uh, thoughts that go on that are wrong in regards to peace. And this is so I've addressed that in your notes there, what peace is not. Peace is not the absence of activity. That is, I hope I can just enter into peace and quiet. My life will be there. Well, if you're there, there will not be peace and quiet. If I'm there, there won't be peace and quiet because we have conflict within us. And if anybody else shows up, in fact, I I heard that there was, uh, on Wednesday morning, I heard that there was disruption out at the prison uh, last uh, Tuesday night, and that's, or, or, or prior to Tuesday night, there had been a disruption, and it took place in the chapel, Amongst Christians, one, one person, that three cans of mace had to be used to settle that. So, I mean, you're talking about uh, disruption. I mean, there's, we have that even as Christians. So it's not the absence of activity. It's not peace and quiet. It's kind of like uh, two children that uh, loved their mother and had not been totally good as children, and they decided they would do something for her. And they decided they'd buy her flowers. And so they went to the flower shop and looked around and they saw different flowers, but they had a limited amount of money and they couldn't buy really what they wanted, but they saw exactly what they wanted. They came home with a small bouquet of flowers and they said, Mom, really, we, we just want to give this to you. We, we hear you talking about wanting, just give me some rest and some quiet, peace and quiet. And we got you these flowers, the flowers we wanted to buy for you, we couldn't afford. It had a beautiful bouquet on it, and it had a ribbon on it, rest in peace. (laughs) Well, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we're talking about. Peace is not the absence of hostility or conflict. In fact, Jesus said that he really came with his message. His message was a message that would breed within it conflict because his message was a message of truth and the backdrop of that as we've already discovered here in Matthew the backdrop of that were some of the lies and some of the arrogance of man that said that we can do this salvation thing on our own so when Jesus says even as we do in the sermon on the mount here in the first beatitude blessed are the poor in spirit those who cannot do anything theirs is the kingdom of God 
And so uh, he's now saying that this message is going to bump right up against. In fact, he says about the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. In Matthew 23, there are seven woes that are given. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So peace is not the absence of conflict. It is really many times the proclamation of truth will create conflict. So we can't speak of it in that. We'll talk more about that in a moment. It is not to evade issues. You know, all I want is peace, and so we, I just won't address any issues. I knew of a couple a number of years ago, about 35 years ago, and they uh, said to a group of people, I was sitting there amongst them, and they said, we have never had in our marriage, and they've been married, they had children, uh, we have never had a conflict. Now, I have to tell you, my immediate thought was fleshy. I thought, you're lying. I mean, how, either you've got to be the most boring people in the world with no convictions, or, or you're lying to me. It, the very nature of two people in a room is you have two different opinions, because that's what happens to man. When man denied the kingdom of God, he then got focused on the kingdom of self. And everybody's running around with their own kingdom concept. And so you have different, you see the picture there. Well, the tragedy of this whole thing is within five years, they were divorced. I'm thinking, (laughs) verification there. So if you're having conflict now, it's a normal thing. How you deal with that is really crucial. So it's not uh, avoiding issues. It's not a passive acceptance of things and not facing trouble. We have to address the issues that are within. We have to seek truth, and that may create a sense of tension. It may create a sense of opposition, but if we keep pressing towards truth, the conflict can be resolved. In fact, it is said, peace is not the absence of something bad, but it's the presence of something good. It's the presence of, well, what is that good? So here you'll see in your note there, peace is being in, I'm going to qualify this, but peace is being in a righteous relationship with God, with self, and with others. Now, when we talk about being in a righteous relationship, what we're talking about this is that between God and I, everything is now made right with me and God. I've been at war with him, but I'm right with him now. We are in harmony with one another. Now, as I grow in grace and knowledge, that harmony becomes even more. But not only that, I'm now at peace with myself. The lies that I've believed about me and about life and how it should operate, I've now come to an understanding that there is a right way to live, and I can be at peace in that right relationship with myself, and that I also can be in a right relationship with others. In fact, then, when we all are righteous and our sin nature is eradicated and the righteous reign forever and ever in the presence of God, there will be no conflict. All will be made right. All will be holy and pure. So it's a right relationship 
that we deal with in this. Now, when you think about that thing, let's talk about being right with God. I'll talk about the mechanics of that in a moment. That means that when I rebelled against God and I set up my own kingdom, there was an arrogance about my life. This is true for everyone that's not a believer. There was an arrogance about our lives that said we can handle life independently of God, and that's a lie. In fact, we are the very enemies of God. Christ commended his love towards us, Romans 5, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were the enemies of God, he gave, he shed his blood for us. So we were the enemy of God. We fought against him. But when that peace settled in after we knew that we were accepted by God, forgiven by God, then the peace was there. The self part that comes in is the part where we have to learn not only that God has forgiven us. Can you imagine that, folks? Can you imagine that everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, every action that has ever been on your part, every ungodly deed you've ever done or thought of, God said, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. I remember um, a man telling me, a dear friend of mine who now lives in eastern Washington, and they were uh, role-playing in a secular government situation. They were role-playing to understand the need of forgiveness in life. These are people that were dealing with the criminal justice. And what they did in this role-playing is they set up one person that was God. And all of these people then in the role-playing were saying things that they had done, and all God could say was, I forgive you. I forgive you. It was an amazing process for them then to begin experiencing. And one person that was sharing some of the things they've done, they said, they they were sharing and sharing. And and this man just said, or a woman, whomever it was, said, I forgive you. I forgive you. And and finally, that person said, how can you forgive me of all that I've just said? How can you forgive me? And the person got also equally enrolled. He said, I'm God. I can do whatever I want. Aren't you glad that God wants to, God wants to forgive you? He doesn't want you to linger in your sin and your rebellion. What a great gift that is to be at peace with God, to know that when I put my head on the pillow at night, there's nothing between my God and me. I'm at peace with him. There's another area that we address here, and it's called being in a righteous relationship, and that's with self. Sometimes we can deal with others. Sometimes the hardest person to forgive is ourselves. Even when we know God has forgiven us, we can recall some of the things we've done. In my own life, when I look back and I think of some of the things that I've said or done, I actually feel the embarrassment of that. I've actually even blushed in shame because what I've done, and I And I have to say, no, 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 Mike, that's under the blood. That's what Jesus said. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I shared with one lady, and uh, we had been dealing with her life, and she'd had a very, very difficult life, a very difficult life. And she listed, she said, I've been a vile person. I've been an offensive person. I said, well, who, who have you offended? Because the scripture says you, you got to make that right with them. And so she literally made a list. And over several weeks, 
we worked through that list and she went to these different people and asked their forgiveness and that's getting right. That's living at peace in a righteous relationship with others. And then we sat there and I, uh, I said, well, we're almost done. And she said, what do you mean? I said, it's completed. I said, no, there's one person that you didn't put on that list. And well, who's that? I said, it's you. Oh, she spoke up, reared up in her seat. She said, I can never forgive myself. And I said, oh, until you can do that, you'll never be set free. There is nothing you've ever thought or done that God cannot cleanse you from. You must forgive yourself in that same way. And so she sat there for a bit, and I sat in silence because I wanted the truth of that to settle into her heart. And finally, with tears, she said, I receive the forgiveness of God, and I embrace it for myself as well. I claim that peace of God in my life. Oh, you could, I watched. You can see the transformation coming about in life. But there are some things that we've done that we still carry. You know, I don't know what's wrong with us Christians. We, we deny the very concept of penance. You know, that you have to go and find out what you must do to cover for your sins. And one religious belief says you've got to do so many Our Fathers and so many Hail Marys. And, and then you then, in relationship to your sin, you take care of those. We, don't, we deny that. We believe in the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that he has completely forgiven us. But here's an amazing thing that we do, and that is when we have done wrong, we sometimes hold people in bondage to that. In fact, we make them do a form of unspoken penance. And instead of forgiving them as Jesus does immediately, Peter had to deal with this. Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother? Seven times. Oh, no, the grace of God is far more than that. Seventy times seven. So much the important lesson is he gives us an illustration right after that in Matthew chapter 18 of a debt, great debt that was owed. And he talks about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the great gift of God. But we then, when people do wrong, we say, well, you know, Maybe they didn't authentically repent. Maybe there's not. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. But I know one thing, that when I go before my God, when I've offended him, and I go before my God, and I confess that to him, I celebrate with God. I want to tell you, you know, we dance together. We rejoice together because when I am forgiven by God, it gives glory to God. It gives glory to God. It speaks of his nature. And I celebrate that. I'm not celebrating my sin. I'm not celebrating my failure. I'm celebrating the greatness of my God who restores me to the position that I rightly belong as his child. Don't you love that when in your own family you have those who are in conflict with you and you have labored over that for a time and then they come just like the prodigal son that we see in the scripture and they come with tears and brokenness in their lives and say, oh, forgive me, and then we embrace them. We should do just as the father did. You kill the fatted calf. You bring in the family. You put on a feast. You put the ring on. You put the robe on. You put the sandals on. And you celebrate the restoration. We need to do that more often, folks. 
We need to move into the very camp of sin where it has reigned for too long and now God has set them free and we need to dance with them. We need to shout with them. We need to rejoice with them. No long faces, no self-righteous, pious spirit, no stroking of the goatee. Well, because that person has finally gained the victory. All right. Let's talk about relationships, that it's a right relationship with others. Paul puts it this way in Romans. He says, live at peace with all men as much as it rests with you. You have a responsibility to try to restore all broken. It is the reconciling ministry that God has given to us to make things right. And I want to tell you that there are times that you will go to people and you will say, I want you to know I have wronged you. And this is specifically how I wronged you. And this is how I cheated you. This is how I betrayed you. Whatever it may be, we'll say that. And I'm asking, will you forgive me? And when they forgive you, the relationship has been restored. You see that? The beauty of that. But I must warn you. This is why Paul says it. Be at peace with all men as much as it rests within you. There are some people, even with your confession, that will not forgive you. They just won't forgive you. And you know why? Because they now have control. They think over you. And many times they do. Because you let them have control. They will not be at peace with you. They will even say, I don't care what you do or how you say it. I will never forgive you. And in my heart, I say, oh, God, I'm thankful that your heart's not that way. And I'm thankful as of right now, I have done everything horizontally you've asked me to do to restore this relationship. It's in your hands. And I no longer walk with any sense of bondage in my heart. Do you understand that? I cannot control the actions of others I can only deal with my own heart. And if my heart is pure before God, pure before myself, and pure before others, regardless of what they do or say that, I am free. Do you understand that? You can be free. There's too much horizontal manipulation that's going on. Well, you know, I don't, I know that there are some people that have not embraced me in my confession. But I want you to know that I'm at peace and they can't hold me into bondage. Maybe you're there. Maybe you've lingered too long. Maybe you've tried to dance before that person and perform before that person. Just try to get them to say it's okay. Let me tell you something, friends. When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the sovereign God of the universe says you're okay, don't let any horizontal manipulator rob you of that. It cost Jesus everything to give that to you. Do you know that? Don't let it be cheap and, well, I got more to say, so let's go on. The enemy of peace is sin. That is always the case. The middle letter describes it all. It's I. 
S-I-N, I. Whenever life is focused on you, the kingdom of self, in opposition to the kingdom of God. The Bible defines three enemies of God. He says the flesh is an enemy. That is, when we are saved, the old nature within us, the old sin nature is there. Although it is rendered powerless, sometimes we allow that to express itself. That's the flesh. And when the flesh expresses itself, it's in opposition to God. We read that in Romans 5. We read, we read that in Galatians 5. Romans 8, I'm sorry, but in Galatians 5. It talks about the spirit and the flesh being in opposition to one another. So the flesh is not serving to demonstrate to others the peace of God. The world is also an enemy, and that is an enemy of God. In James 4, he calls us adulteresses, you who... Uh, align yourself with the world. One who commits adultery is one who has committed their lives to one in a, in a covenant relationship and gives themselves to another. He said, as believers, when you are mine and you give yourself to the world, and we talk about the world, we're talking about all the philosophical systems out there, everything that's in opposition to God. When you give yourself to the world, you have aligned yourself with the enemy of God. The final one who is an enemy is the devil. Matthew 13 talks about the sower that goes out and and then the enemy comes and snatches that seed away. And the disciples are saying, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, the enemy is that snatches the seed away. That's the devil. So God defines Satan as an enemy, one who is in opposition. Now, here's the thing we need to understand. When we embrace these three enemies, we declare war against God. It doesn't mean you're not a child of God. You are. Your, 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 your childhood, your, uh, your family relationship is sealed by the work of Christ. But your actions can make you as, as an enemy of God. And when we do, we cannot be, as I'm going to address in just a moment, we cannot be peacemakers because we have lost ourselves in our own world of selfishness. You say, well, how's that to be? Well, you look at a couple of passages with me. I've listed these here. James chapter 4 talks about the two primary, uh, well, uh, James talks about two primary, chapter 4 talks one, two primary things that perpetuate the absence of peace. It talks about this, and I quoted part of this, but I'll read the rest to you here. James 4. What is the source, verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship of the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. One of the things that drives conflict and hostility is the preoccupation for the advancement of self. We do not know how to be those who are humble, those who are meek. We always have to rise up, and it becomes our issue. We're more important than others. When I first got married, I thought, you know, um, Jan is so blessed to have me. (laughs) 
Now you laugh about that, but honestly, I thought that. I thought, when she learns to be like me, she's going to be so happy because I had this thought about how life ought to be. Now, the thing that I was shocked to find out is that she had an idea of what life ought to be, too. And she thought, although not articulated it like the way I did, she didn't do that, but she thought, wow, when Mike changes and is like me, we'll be so happy. I will anyway. <laughs> See, that's what happens when, you have, when you're pressing your desire against another, then the, the fruit of that is conflict that comes about in the midst of that. Now, thank God that over the time, over 50 years now, we've learned to deal with that. And I did learn she was right. And so, no. <laughs> Now we've learned to deal with that. But anytime you drive your own pleasure, may I just look at another one very quickly here because this is the vicious one, the tongue. James chapter three, I'll begin at verse five. And he talks about a a ship that is directed by such a small little rudder. It directs the whole course of that ship. Then he says, so also, James three, five, so also the tongue is small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. So how great a force is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is, setting, is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fires the course of our lives and is set on fire by hell. What is he saying here? He's saying this very simply. What perpetuates conflict. What sows seeds of division is the tongue. You saying things that you shouldn't say about others, listening to things and repeating things that shouldn't be said, uh, for your own uh, defense, declaring something that's untrue. The tongue, the tongue keeps talking about that. And you think of all the conflicts that have existed in your life and you realize how much of that conflict is driven by the tongue. Well, now we know the problem. What's the solution? Okay, very quickly here. The solution is very simple. It's a passage that was read for us, Jesus Christ. In that second chapter of Ephesians, it speaks of the division that existed between two people that could not have been further divided, the Gentiles and the Jews. And Jesus says, I'm going to show you how peace can come about by these two diverse groups. Now, let me tell you something. If I can figure out what Jesus was doing in that very process, and I can duplicate that, then certainly any lesser conflict should be able to be resolved. Here's what he does. The Jew believed that this is the way to live. The Gentiles believed this was the way to live. The Jew would have nothing to do with the Gentile. The Gentile, nothing to do with the Jew. So they were divided. And so what Jesus says in that passage, he tore down the wall that was dividing them. In other words, everything that they were holding up as a means of their self-righteousness, he tore that down and he says, I'm going to level the playing field and I want to tell you there's only one way of righteousness, or may I say peace, righteous relationship, peace, and that will be what you do with me, the Prince of Peace, the one who preaches peace, the one who establishes peace. He says, Now, let's understand how all conflict is resolved. It is found only in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the price he paid on the cross for our sins. And until that is resolved, there will be no peace personally. There will be no peace socially in that very process. There can be no peace. 
Personally, we deal with that sin. Relationally, we deal with that sin. But Jesus said, what do you do with me? It's interesting then that he, and I might say, even in Romans 5, it talks about that, having established our failed condition in chapter 3, the resolution born about in Jesus. Chapter 4 talks about how we get that relationship with him, 5, with God and with Christ. And then chapter 5 says, and therefore you have peace with God. As a result of what Christ has done, and your faith acceptance of that, it says that very clearly, Romans 5, you now have peace with God. It's the only way. What is shocking to me in the culture in which we live is that we have to try to establish peace in so many different ways, and we leave Christ out. I often have said to two people when they come in and they're having conflict, both are believers, having conflict in their marriage. And I asked him, I said, so you strongly accept Christ? Yes, I walk with him. I said, well, I'm going to tell you something that's very, very simple. The Christ in you is not at war with the Christ in you. So whatever's going on has nothing to do with Christ. It has everything to do with you. That's always a sobering moment. It kind of kills the conversation too because it lends, its only, uh, it lends it only to this and that's repentance. I guarantee you that is the issue. And, and I know it's so much so that when everything in life that raises itself up in opposition to God is now set aside, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, there will be peace because the sovereign will of God will rule supreme in the process. Now, we then get to be called the sons of God because we're peacemakers. Listen, I'll tell you something. You can't be a peacemaker if you don't know peace. And you can't be a peacemaker if you don't know the prince of peace. You have to know that. But when we look at this, I, this is an amazing thought. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That really means they do the work of God. To be called a son of God is one who carries out the work and will of God. God did not give peace to the United Nations, to the failed League of Nations. He doesn't give it to a secretary of state. He doesn't give it to a government. He doesn't give it to an educational institution. He doesn't give it to a social welfare worker. He doesn't give it to a counselor. God gives, listen carefully, the responsibility of establishing peace to every one of us. I am responsible not for establishing peace, but for the proclamation of the message of peace and the Prince of Peace. That's Jesus Christ. I close with this illustration. Listen to this very carefully. In in the book, his book, The Fall of Fortresses, Elmer uh, Benner tells a story of an unusual flight he took in a B-17 bomber, in the Flying Fortress bomber. He was a crew, he was a navigator on that crew during World War II. On a raid over Germany, the plane was hit in the fuel tank by anti-aircraft fire. You know, that's that fire that, you know, it shoots up there and then explodes. You see those all the time when you're watching war movies. The plane was hit in the fuel tank by anti-aircraft, but despite a direct hit, the tank did not explode and the crew returned safely. Later, 11 20-millimeter unexploded shells were taken from the fuel tank. 
They were sent to be diffused, and it was discovered that all but one of the shells was empty. That one shell contained a small written check note. This was a man who was enslaved by the German army, and his job was, or her job was, to make this military ammunition. And this note said this, this is all we can do for now for you. This is all we can do for you now for you. Listen to this. No one knows who this anonymous person was, peace-loving check worker, whether or not he was even motivated by the Beatitudes. But when he or she sowed blank shells in the bomber crew, certainly harvested peace. This action was not only a small attempt to help end World War II, but it brought about a great personal peace to each man on that B-17 bomber who may have otherwise perished. Let me tell you something. Your greatest enemy to being involved with any kind of peace proclamation is that you're overwhelmed by the nature of conflict that goes on around us. You're overwhelmed by that. And you think, what can I do when it's so much? Let me tell you something. You're just responsible for right where you are. Just share the message right where you are, the Prince of Peace. Let me just tell you, yesterday, so I was out walking, and uh, when I was walking, I, I walked past this man and I said good morning to him. He said nothing. Then later on, Jan and I were out walking. I walked by him again. He got up and walked over to where I was and introduced himself. And then he told me a little bit about his story. Vietnam, Agent Orange, uh, three times battling now. He's third about with cancer. And I thought immediately, Jan and I talked. I said, that man does not know peace. But I do. And so I guarantee you that my walks will go by that house every day. We will have another encounter. In fact, this morning as I'm during my prayer time, I thought, if he never comes outside to do anything in the yard, then I will knock on his door because I have a message of peace for him. I am, by God's assignment, his agent of peace in his life. And I accept that responsibility from God. There are people that are around you that need that message of peace. You need to receive the message of peace from God. You need to walk in a right relationship with Him, and you need to be active, not dealing with all of the crud that's in your life. Get done with that. Be at peace and become a proclaimer of peace.